Good morning, everybody. It's good to be together, and uh, we're looking forward to what God has in store. Happy Palm Sunday, and uh, we want to teach a little bit about that today, and um, want to uh, share with you a few thoughts, and then in the second service, uh, we want to just, we're just going to preach away today. And, uh, but we do want to celebrate Palm Sunday. It's a key Sunday in the grand scheme of things because it is Palm Sunday that kicks off the week of the Passion of the Christ. And uh, this next seven days is the week that changed all of history. And we can't allow ourselves to just overlook it. And so we want to even challenge you already this morning to begin this week with thinking about the last week of the Lord's life on this earth before he was crucified. And then obviously, thankfully, he rose again and has ascended into glory. But I want to read from John chapter 12, this is one of the few stories that are mentioned um, inconsistently in each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered synoptic Gospels or similar Gospels, and part of the reason is, is because of what they cover, and then John covers the Lord in a different way, but within all four of these Gospels, there's a few stories that each one of them record, and Palm Sunday is one of them, what we have come to call Palm Sunday. It wasn't called that back then. Uh, it started out really as a, an ordinary day, and Jesus was just knew that his time had come, and he wanted to get to Jerusalem, and so he... Uh, if you read John chapter 11, it's, a, it's an interesting story, but you'll see the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. You'll see that Jesus weeps. You'll see that there is a plot to kill Jesus. And then we get to chapter 12, and we can begin reading here in verse number 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't recognize what was going on. That's key to understand. If we were living in the days of Jesus, this would just be another Sunday. And when Jesus began to do something, the disciples, those that were even the closest to him, did not recognize or realize what was actually taking place. It was only, according to John, they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. Now the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. 
And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I, I want to share with you today with the concept of Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry, if you will, I want to look maybe a little bit deeper on what is going on because if the disciples didn't recognize what was going on, not a lot of others did either, okay? And uh, because of that, they missed out on some things that took place and did not recognize what was happening and what Jesus was really saying. Can I just say, say it this way as we start? Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. And, and I've often said it this way, there's nothing that's ever occurred to God. You know, some things occur to us, but they never occur to God. God just, he knows everything. He's got it all planned out. He's got his ideas already in place. So nothing is done by accident. It's the reason why I'm very careful with the Word of God because if He doesn't do anything by accident, the way things are in here is not by accident. And so I'm very careful to read into the Scripture what I want to, it to say because if He doesn't do anything by accident, I've got to figure out what He's actually saying. And I believe there's, a, there's, there's some different people that happen. Now, there's churches all around the world today that are going to be celebrating Palm Sunday, and they'll celebrate it in all different kinds of ways. I've been in services where when they walked through the doors, we were handed a palm branch, and during our worship, palm branches were waved and thrown on the floor in great rejoicing. And uh, the problem is, is most people don't understand what was even happening. There, some of the other Gospels record that not only did they use palm branches, but they threw their coats down on the ground. Okay? And, and so Palm Sunday has become a celebratory Sunday for Christians without realizing what they were even celebrating. Well, Pastor, it's the triumphal entry. Yeah, but what did the triumphal entry do? Took them to Calvary. This is the first step towards death. And what's even more important to understand that, and we're going to get to it towards the end of the lesson today, is that Jesus understood that Palm Sunday was the entry point to his passion. Now passion, we like to talk about passion in good ways, but passion is the thing that totally drains you by giving yourself to it. And Jesus totally gave himself to his creation and totally emptied himself out. And the culmination of Palm Sunday is actually Easter next week. And we like to divide it and separate it that this is Palm Sunday and Friday is Calvary and Sunday's the empty tomb. And Pentecost Sunday, a few months, a few weeks, 50 days exactly, to from, from then is going to be the celebration of the ascension and the, the glory of God. And so there's something that has to happen, though, and that is to recognize that Palm Sunday cannot be separated from Passover weekend. And so people were walking through and putting down palm branches 
and putting down uh, coats in the pathway for the Lord. And, be, and they were shouting, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they didn't even know what they were saying or doing. And the reason why we know that is because four days later, they're standing in a trial sentencing Jesus to crucifixion. So what's really going on on this Palm Sunday? See, here's the thing that we sometimes don't understand and recognize is that Jesus uses all different sorts of measures or means to get his point across. And sometimes we fail to recognize what Jesus was. Jesus is using the people that are going to shout crucify him a couple days later to announce the entrance of a new kingdom. Now, you need to try to grab this. Sometimes it's the ones that are going to turn their back on you those people that are going to try to destroy you in just another week's time that God will place into your pathway to open up the doorway to your greatest victory. Don't shy away from the things of God when you just because it doesn't feel comfortable or doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense that some of these were doing the praising and the worshiping that they did, but they were what they were doing was inadvertently opening up the door to a brand new kingdom that was getting ready to happen, just not the way they thought. I find it interesting in this passage that there are at least four different types of people in the crowd. Now, there are three main festivals or feasts in, in Israel. There's several of them. I think there's like 11 total or something like that, but there's three main ones, and the Passover is one of them. And we're, we're, we're heading into Passover. We're six days out from Passover. And so there's people flocking to Jerusalem. And the numbers that have been by theologians that know math better than I do, figuring out how many sacrifices per person and, and reading all of the ins and outs of the way they operated Passover week. But it has been estimated that there could have been close to 2.7 million people in Jerusalem that week. 2.7 million in Jerusalem. And uh, so there's all different kinds of people there, but I, I want to just put them into about four different categories for us this morning. Uh, the first ones that were probably there were simply the sightseers. They, they weren't really interested in the whole theological spectrum of Jesus being king. They weren't really there to crown the Lord as the king of the world. They were just interested in seeing what the hub the, 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 the hubbub was all about. All, because it, it says that the news that Lazarus had been uh, raised from the dead by this man Jesus had spread. And, and people were out there looking to see what Jesus was going to do next. Surely this man that raised a man from the dead. And I'm sure that the stories of what Jesus did walking on the water and feeding the 5,000. And, and it spread throughout the area. And, and there are those sightseers. You have a big rumor mill 
of everything that's going on and you can draw a crowd. I mean, if we mention today that there's going to be a man in downtown Minneapolis that raised somebody from the dead, that walked on water, that fed 20,000 or so people with two fish and five loaves and, and did all of those things, can you imagine how many people would flock to Minneapolis just to see what was going on? And there had to be, out of the 2.7 million people that were in Jerusalem, there had to be those that were out there just interested to see the next big show, the next magic trick, the next thing, that the sensationalism of it. You, you see, it's possible to attract people for a time by sensationalism or shrewd publicity but it is never something that lasts. And so these people that were sightseeing came out to see this man. I don't know what was in their brains as far as what they visualized, but they were coming to the one that spoke into a tomb and called out a dead body four days after it had passed away and was raised from the dead just shortly before this. And now they're saying, okay, i got to see this for myself. And when they see him, they were disappointed. Because they just saw this carpenter sitting on a donkey. Wasn't even a regal horse. It was just a mule. And that's what he was riding. Is there any wonder why just a few days later, that same mentality got swept up by the crowds, that the religious leaders that started the frantic mob mentality of killing Jesus. Why? Because they had never really experienced him. They were only looking for the show. And when the show didn't show up for them, they weren't interested. Can I just say that there are some things that are happening in the religious world today where people are only attracted to the show? the miracles, the signs, the wonders of God. Can I tell you that the miracle signs and wonders of God should not be the thing that we base our relationship on? Because the relation, the, he does miracle signs and wonders for a specific purpose at a specific time, oftentimes only known to him. And we need to trust him enough to call out to him cast our needs on him, not because he's going to perform the miracle, but because he cares for us. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. You see, unfortunately, there's too many people that are serving God just until the next miracle. And so they struggle in life because all they're doing is looking for the next thing, the next event. And they're failing to realize that Jesus was establishing a personal relationship with his people. And when he was entering the triumphant uh, uh, journey here into Jerusalem, getting ready for Calvary, what they did not understand is the greatest miracle was getting ready to happen and that was the, the, the veil was going to be rent from the top to the bottom. And the people that were there looking for a miracle worker were getting ready to be able to enter by themselves without the priesthood into the very presence of God. 
but because they were so tied up with the miracle signs and wonders, the raising of the dead of Lazarus, they miss out on the presence. You can get so accustomed to the miracle that you miss out on his glory. You miss out on, and God is trying to say through the triumphal entry by him riding on a donkey, it is this, I'm getting ready to create a way for you to dwell in my presence all the time. Not just once a year. Not just at Passover. Not just in the miraculous of God. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the miraculous of God. I love celebrating miracle signs and wonders. I want to see more of it. But our church, my relationship with him, none of that can be based on that. It has to be based on this. My Jesus died for me and saved my soul and I'm in a relationship and in his presence. And whether the miracle comes or doesn't, I'll be in his presence. And when the and a sign comes or it doesn't come, I want to be in his presence because I want to walk through the veil of the tabernacle of the Holy of Holies. I don't want to just be a sightseer. A sightseer dwells in the shallow. God wants us in the deep. Number two, there were those there that were greeting Jesus as a conquering hero. As a conquering hero. Um, when, when they're quoting these, these words here, blessed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, the word Hosanna simply means save now. And, and it comes from a psalm. It's Psalm 118. I want to read it from the Psalms. Psalm 118 and verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord, or Hosanna. Our Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from house uh, from the house of the Lord. Now, in our English, we think, well, that's really cool. You know, he quoted Old, Te Old Testament there. The people were shouting Old Testament terminology. But what we don't understand is the Jewish connection to that Old Testament psalm. There was a group of psalms called the Hallel Psalms, H-A-L-L-E-L. And these were psalms of praise that they would give to God. And Psalm 118 is the last of the Hallel Psalms. And tradition tells us that to the Jews, this particular psalm was the psalm of the conqueror. They would begin to sing these psalms when they began to conquer their enemies. And it's not in scripture, but in, in history. How many have ever heard of the Maccabean revolt? Okay, Simon Maccabeus. It was the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he went and he kicked out Syria and took up their, their they, they gathered some ground and territory and overcame uh, those that were in Syria. And it was at that moment that the people began to sing this, this particular psalm, even about Simon Maccabeus. So this psalm, when they begin to do it, they are singing a song to a conquering hero. The problem with this song 
is that they didn't understand how Jesus was going to conquer. It was absolutely accurate that Jesus was a conqueror. But what they were thinking, because Simon was only a few hundred years before this, and, and, and they were thinking, let me put it to you in these, th- this way. We regard our founding fathers that went through the Revolutionary War as great heroes of this country. Give me liberty or give me death. And all 56 of the signers of the Declaration of Independence gives us an insight because most of them could have lived their lives without any problems, but they sacrificed it all for the birth of a country. Okay? The same thing or similar things was happening. They were new, and I don't know about you. uh, I don't see anybody in here that knew George Washington personally. I said in here, Larry's in the vestibule greeting people. And he can't even hear me. So it's been a few hundred years. The same relationship to the people of that day. Look back on Simon Maccabeus, and now they're seeing this this person who has raised people from the dead, who has preached about the kingdom of Israel, who has preached about the kingdom of God. And in their minds, the kingdom of God was equivalent to the kingdom of Israel because they leaned on the promise of their forefather Abraham that said, I will make a great nation out of you. And so they see this Jesus riding on a donkey coming in, and they recognize something is getting ready to happen, and so they begin to worship him with the Hallel conquering psalm and says, Hosanna, save us. It's not even simply a praise. See, we say Hosanna, Hosanna, and we're thinking, oh, praise God, that's a, that's a worship. No, that's a plea. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay? The problem is when they did when they realized that when Jesus entered Jerusalem and he gets off of the donkey, he does not go to the palace to overthrow the Roman authorities, but he goes to the church house, if you will, and he turns over some tables and, and spiritually punches the religious people of the day in the mouth. You have made the house of God, a den of thieves. Blows the place up. Tips over the tables. Chastises them. Can I just tell you that the people that had just been worshiping him, if you will, hallelling him, if you will, hosanna him, if you will, as he's walking into Jerusalem, is now looking at this man that is not addressing the Roman oppression, but he is addressing the, 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 the traditional aspect of the religious circle of that time. And if there was ever a religious people, it was the people of Israel. Is there any wonder a couple days later they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him? Why? Because he didn't measure up to what they thought was supposed to happen. Can I just, 
you and I all have expectations. In, in fact, there's often times that I'll shoot out a text message before a Sunday and I'll, I'll challenge you, come expecting. Expectation breeds anticipation. Anticipation breeds faith. Faith activates the power and presence of God. But when we misplace our expectation, it causes us to misplace our faith. And it causes our faith to misplace the call in the presence of God. And then God's not able to move. And instead of saying, oh, isn't God awesome? It's, oh, where were you, God? Because of false expectations. We may not shout out crucify him, but without raising your hands, I just know that all of us at some point in our lives have been disappointed by what we thought God was supposed to do. Well, God, I was supposed to have this job. I was supposed to have this spouse. I was supposed to have this lifestyle. God, I was supposed to have my healing. I was supposed to have my breakthrough. My expectation, God, you said to come with an expectancy in my heart. I'm expecting you to move the mountains. I'm expecting you to open the sea. I'm expecting you, God, to do such and so. And when he decides to walk on the sea instead of splitting the sea, we freak out and say, God, you're not doing what I expected. We see this in the triumphal entry of uh, uh, into Jerusalem. These people hailed him as the king, but because he didn't become the king the way he ex- they expected him to be king, a couple days later they were saying, crucify him. I don't ever want to get to the place where my expectations limit what God can do in my life. My expectation has always got to be, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Anything else doesn't matter. Which sounds like a cop-out the way you pray, but let me just encourage you that that it's not a cop-out. It's probably a stronger prayer than you begging for a job. Because you are putting everything into his hands instead of setting yourself up for failure. See, never knew you'd get all this out of a triumphal entry, did you? The third group of people that were there were Jesus' followers. And here's what drives me nuts about them. I hear nothing from them. In another passage, the disciples tell the people to be quiet. And Jesus rebukes them and says, if they don't cry out, I'll make the rocks cry out. Can I just tell you that the way Jesus enters somebody's life is no business of ours? The way he deals with individuals is really he not going to deal with you like he deals with me? We can't be silent when Jesus starts walking in and somebody else is trying to connect with him in a different way. We can't look there and say, no, 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 that's not the way to do it because that's not the way I did it. 
Because Jesus will turn and rebuke us and say, if they don't do it this way, I'm going to have to find a rock to do it. And what that's really saying, let me just read into it Tim Sanders style, is this. At least they figured out they should worship. You haven't said anything yet. You haven't put any palm branches in the ground. You're still wearing your coat. Yeah, you're walking with me. You're my follower. But those that don't even know me are making fools out of themselves. And you're just standing back there all quiet. I know it's Sunday school, but oh well. There is nothing in this world that I believe is worse than a critical church. These followers of Jesus, read it, read all four Gospels. They really don't say anything. Where were they when they said, oh, wait a minute. In four days, you're going to be shouting, crucify him, and I'm going to show up and I'm going to say, hey, don't you remember four days ago when you were worshiping? Instead, they scattered to the four winds. Peter denied them. We don't hear anything else about from the disciples for the rest of them other than they stood afar off watching what was taking place. Good old Peter and Andrew and James and John, the sons of thunder. And they're silent. Listen, I challenge you. When you come across somebody that's worshiping God, even though they don't know how they're worshiping and what they're doing and how they're processing it and how God's interested, encourage them. Step in there and say, yes, he is the king of kings. Yes, he is. the." If one of them would have stood up at the triumphal entry and said, yes, Jesus is king, and then when the crucifying and all that started to happen, they could stand up and say, but this is the way he was coming. He wasn't coming in regal form. He was coming as a baby wrapped in flesh in Bethlehem, and he was going to live a life just like you. So you and I, it took them another two months to get that. They finally get it in Acts chapter 2. And John, who's writing this towards the end of the century, goes ahead and says it. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Which lets me know, when God moves, even if you're the closest follower of Jesus, you may not understand what's going on. Worship anyhow. Praise anyhow. Honor anyhow. Follow anyhow. His followers. The, the last group, God bless them, is the Pharisees. I say God bless them in serious, and I don't say that sarcastically. Because at least they said what the disciples should have been saying. They said it out of fear of losing their authority and their power. They said it out of apprehension about whether this thing was really real or true. They didn't look at Jesus as the 
the Messiah. They didn't see him as the one that was going to set them free, but at least they recognized the authority he walked in, and they weren't afraid to say it. I, I know this sounds harsh, and it sounds like I'm coming down on believers, but it, it, I don't want to sound in a negative, but I want to challenge somebody. Don't let the religious rulers of this world who really don't know what Jesus is all about be the ones that God has to use to declare his anointing, to declare his authority. I, I, I pray to God that you and I, followers of Jesus, would rise up in this last day and begin to declare what thus says the Lord instead of letting God have to use somebody that doesn't even believe in him. The Pharisees said one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. I've got to tell you something. There is a world today and a vast majority of them are going after Christ. Listen, I know it seems like Christianity is on a downward spiral. It seems like everything is being closed up. It seems like everything is being deterred and silenced and the church isn't on the move and the church isn't growing. But my friend, you've got to realize if the church wasn't growing, we would not be a subject for discussion. But because the church is growing all around every podcast, newscast, everything, if you begin to look close enough, there are people that don't even believe in Jesus that are saying everybody's becoming like Jesus. Why? Because he doesn't do anything by accident. He doesn't do anything by accident. Do you realize that Jesus incarnated, God made flesh, is the only God in any religion? in any religion that says that they came and died for you? Every other religion is about us getting to the God. But in Christianity, God came to get us. And I pray that it doesn't take the false religious teachers of the day to declare what's really going on, but that those who love him, those who are called by name, those who are hand in hand with the master would be willing every day of every week to stand up and say, Jesus wants you, and he came for you. I, I, I need you to notice that this, and then I'm just about done. The world has gone after him. Here's the problem with that statement: is the Pharisees did not realize that Jesus riding on a donkey was him coming after the world. 
And yet the church for years, I have just read it this week. The time is coming to an end. Don't go to hell. Posted everywhere. I've seen it. Maybe not in those terms. But are you ready? Are you ready for the Lord's return? Are you going, which way are you going, up or down? Heaven or hell? But can I just tell you something? Uh, that mindset, the way you look at that, tells me that you are like the Pharisees that are worried about the world going after him. I'm going to get right. I'm going to find Jesus. I'm going to cross every T and dot every I. I'm going to hit every checklist. I'm going to make it so that I don't have to go to hell, that I can go to heaven. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. That's not what happened at the triumphal entry. It was not about the people coming out to Jesus. It was about Jesus coming to the people. God, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's not just talking about the rapture, but on Sunday morning, April uh, 10th, 19, or 2022, Jesus, come into our presence. You come to us, triumphal entry into our presence. You are welcome in our city. They may have refused you and rejected you, but I can't wait for you to show up. triumphal entry is the sign that says I want you I, it's, it's part of the fulfillment Paul mentioned this a couple of weeks ago it's part of the fulfillment of the 23rd psalm that says surely goodness and mercy shall pursue you all the days of your life you see the, 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 the Palm Sunday is triggering or is opening the door to our ultimate salvation. And what it's saying is, you don't have to come to me. I am coming to you. And when I get to you, that's when you have to make a decision whether or not you come to me. Wow. There's a couple principles that I want to finish up with in the next 10 minutes about this triumphal entry. We've talked about the different peoples and, and how they responded and how it applies to us, but let me give you a couple others. Now, some people will debate this, but if you read the other passages of the synoptics, Jesus sends the disciples into town and tells them exactly where the donkey's going to be and the colt's going to be. In fact, he tells the disciples, and when you go and steal them, he didn't use the word steal, but when you go and take them, the owners are going to ask you, what are you doing? And you just tell them, the Lord hath need of them. And they'll let it go. Now, there are some theologians that believe that that just happened that way that Jesus in his foreknowledge knew that there was a donkey sitting there with a colt and that the owners were there and that just miraculously they just went, oh, well, if the Lord needs it, I'll give it. Okay? 
Maybe that is how it happened. We don't really know. But can I tell you what I believe? I believe that God had already set it up. There are some theologians that teach that when the disciples said the Lord hath need of them, it was code word to the owners that Jesus was calling, that Jesus had already set it up and said, there's coming a day, I'm going to be back in Jerusalem. I know you've got donkeys and colts. And so when some people come to get them from you, I'll let them know by saying the Lord hath need of them. You just give them and you know it's coming. Because who else do they know that the Lord is? I said that I may be wrong on that. It may have just been a miracle of God and the disciples and God was approving somebody to steal a donkey. That may be how it is. But here's what I want you to know. That the triumphal entry was a deliberate act of God. It wasn't an accident that it was a donkey. It wasn't an accident on how he found it. It wasn't an accident. It was a prophetic fulfilling of the claim to be Messiah. Listen, I know the, the Bible says the disciples didn't catch on to this, but Jesus riding on a donkey, and not only that, but a borrowed donkey, if you read Zechariah 9.9, that is a prophetic statement of how Jesus was going to enter, and you're going to see your king riding on a donkey. Now, that makes it a little bit different, but what I want to share with you today is that there are two animals in biblical days that were noble, regal animals, the horse and the donkey. The horse and the donkey. The, the, the horse we'll get to in a second, but the donkey, we see that it's regal because it was a pack animal. And so like when you read in the story of Joseph and his brothers going back and forth, it wasn't some regal horse that was carrying all the gold. It was a donkey that was carrying the treasure. If you read in 1 Samuel and in 1 Kings, there's a couple different passages where royalty rode on a donkey. So I don't understand why they didn't catch it other than the fact that they were ignorant about what was going on. But Jesus, I believe had a purpose, a divine reason for choosing a donkey. And it was a deliberate and prophetic fulfillment of the one coming on a donkey. Here is what the difference is. In those days, when a king rode upon a horse, it was he was bent on war. But when he rode on a donkey, he was bent for peace. When Jesus, and it's the reason why the people didn't recognize him. We talked about the people that turned their back on him. If he would have ridden in on a horse, the people would have shouted and would have, and, and would have rightfully expected that Jesus was coming in to do battle, that was coming in to overcome the evil of the world, that was, over, was coming to overthrow Rome and all of the, the despots that were there. But he didn't. He came riding on a donkey, which said, I'm riding to bring you peace. 
And peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the tranquility in the middle of trouble. He was not coming into Jerusalem to alleviate all the pain and the suffering of the people and to overcome the oppression. He was coming to give them a tranquility in the middle of it because he knew he was getting ready to uh, start a church, if you will, birth a church, raise a church so that the church could be the manifestation of his being on this planet today. But my friend, if you read the book of Revelation, there is coming another day when he's not coming on a donkey, but he's riding on a white horse and the armies of heaven will be with him. Oh, there's coming a day when he's coming to do battle, but right now he is coming to release peace. And if he came to release peace, shouldn't we do the same? Then I want to close with this. This triumphal entry on Palm Sunday was one of the greatest acts of courage known to man. There was already, he was already on a kill list. In fact, when he says, let's go to Jerusalem, something, what are you talking about? You know that they're looking to kill you there. They sure are. But I'm going anyhow. Now listen, we preach and teach about Gethsemane all the time. Where the Bible says that he labored in prayer and sweat as it were great drops of blood. And he was under the intense pressure of all of our sin. And he cries out, if this cup be possible to pass from me, let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And we preach that that's the moment that Jesus gave up all of it. Can I just tell you, back up just a few days when he's riding on a donkey, knowing full well that he's riding in the te- into the teeth of his enemy. He's riding right into his death sentence. He's riding right into Calvary. He's riding right into a beating and a scourging. He's riding right into into a crown of thorns that was beat into his brow. He's getting ready to enter into that which is a a spit in the face, blood uh, plucking type of situation, and yet he rode anyhow. He rode anyhow. Here's our challenge on Palm Sunday. Are you willing to ride anyhow? Are you willing to go into the pit of hell to make a difference in somebody's life? Are you willing to sacrifice your prayer time? Are you willing to sacrifice your resource? Are you willing to sacrifice your dignity? How dignified did Jesus look when Pilate presented him to the people? Blood-soaked, lashing from the back of his shoulders all the way to his heels, ribbons of flesh everywhere, and they put a wool jacket on him. Crown of thorns, spitting at him, mocking him. He did it for you and I. 
I'm thankful for Calvary. But today I'm as equally thankful that he chose to ride on Palm Sunday. Let's stand. My prayer today, it, it, it's, it's sometimes easy to celebrate the empty tomb. But are you willing to worship before the empty tomb when Jesus was just making his way to his suffering and to his passion? Let's just raise our voices in our hearts. Jesus, God, I'm thankful for Palm Sunday because I'm thankful that you entered Jerusalem. You didn't need to go there, but you chose to go there, and you chose that for me.